Thank you, Chris. I was very pleased to be um, invited to talk with you all tonight. It's a, it's a long-standing uh, offer that Chris has made. We, we met, I think, after an interesting uh, moment when we decided as, as part of a move to a new office, which I'll show you in a moment, uh, we thought we'd look at a series of ways of extending our, our practice and extending uh, the dialogue of our practice, both by the design of a building that would be, uh, that hopefully would contribute to that, but also a building that would actually provide us opportunities to outreach uh, and um, engage with others. And one of the, the, one of the very first things we did was actually invite um, M3 from uh, Brisbane to come down and bid themselves in our practice for a day, talk at a public forum at night time that we organised, and then we flew up, Steph and me, the other principal of the practice and myself flew to Brisbane and engaged with their practice for a day and talked to an invited audience that they arranged that night. So it became part of an interesting uh, pattern that has actually emerged through uh, our practice in the sort of a, a new life that we've taken on as we've uh, changed and moulded ourselves as part of a, a new building enterprise. And Chris was at that, um, that meeting of, of people in, in Brisbane that was organised as part of that and, and the association's been made from there. Um, inventing practice is a term we often describe when we're talking about things within our practice and often it's a way of actually uh, resolving problems and issues. We think we are an invented practice. By that I mean I had a short and wonderful experience at a firm called Cox and Carmichael after I graduated for a very short period of time before travelling but then went straight into practice relatively early. Others like Stefan and Andy Wong and other major contributors to our practice came as graduates. So in a way we are a practice that is constantly referring to the way we invent ourselves. We didn't bring the large experience of long-term association with other practices. We sort of invented on the, as we go. So part of the consideration of designing a, a building for ourselves was to look at a building that could actually uh, create spaces that curate research. And both, it's both reflective um, and, and, and intense. So I'll take you through the experience of, uh, of our, our life within the building. So the first thing in moving to the building was to actually refer to our own history. And this is one of the, I think, really important moments of our younger practice where with a grant we had as a, as a business grant to establish our practice in the city, we spent the whole of it and more on a commissioned artwork with Peter Kennedy, this remarkable scripted artwork that shone across the centre of Melbourne for the 14 years we were in our old office. So as part of our move into the gritty industrial suburb of Collingwood, the most important thing was would the new building be able to take our wonderful Peter Kennedy artwork and could we, rather than have it glow out across the centre of the CBD of Melbourne, could it wrap around a small series of, uh, a small intersection of two, two streets in gritty Collingwood. So it allowed us to actually then reacquaint ourselves with an important participant with our practice, Peter Kennedy, um, and, and rework his work and reformat it to the, to the window arrangement and the glazing bar arrangement, and then give it life within this new setting. So as we refer to, we reflect on um, the nature of our practice, we look at the way we constantly use this building to kind of reconsider the way we, we um, congregate as a practice, the way we have conversations, the way we can orchestrate all sorts of activities um, at their most intense and at their most calm through creating settings within a building. It's the sort of thing that we might talk about with a client, but 
uh, this building project gave us a great opportunity to refer to our own dynamics, histories, sets of aspirations, the, the wish for change, the wish to draw on our own histories and bring those into one uh, building program that would allow us to, I think, expand and further develop as a practice. So into the detail, and here in the, the, the technical details of this screen of, of the, the new bit of the building program, it actually starts to become part of the signposting of the engagement of a whole series of entities that actually um, inspired us to, come, to uh, create um, a series of tendencies at the ground floor of the building that would actually relate to the industrial character of the area. This was formerly an industrial zone that's, that's rapidly changing as the industry dies away in this part of uh, in Melbourne. And we decided we would actually recall that history and, and have people on the ground floor that, to share the building with us that would contribute to the act of making. We could have got more rent and easier, had an easier journey of filling our building if we had, had not had this stricture that we applied over it of having people that were involved in the act of making. So bus projects, came and had, had created their artist-run collective gallery here, but with their stu two studio spaces where artists uh, gain uh, uh, active studio participation and have, a, have a, as part of this program that then exhibit within the gallery, become part of a very important part of the creative culture of this corner of the building. Um, uh, then Spacecraft Studios, remarkable participants in Melbourne's art scene and, and, and uh, an organisation that in their own right create uh, uh, fascinating works and have a retail entity further up in uh, Collingwood, uh, have this as their print workshop. Again, so very much in the act of making. And a, a weird and wonderful pair of, of Irish, an Irish couple that actually produce the food then that is uh, part of a, quite an eccentric cafe that, that, that is also that completes the equation on the ground floor After, and when we enter not only off a small one-way street but up a laneway and round the back to, to find the entrance point into our office. So the, uh, the cafe is on ground floor, we've created a small front courtyard as the footpath's too narrow to congregate for the, the, the urgent need for coffee at the start of a day. It's a small, the fit out that we did uh, and, and worked through as part of creating the setting for for their business. It links through an old industrial door through to spacecraft and the kind of work that they're doing immediately adjacent within the cafe, this remarkable work that they do. And then out of that association, um, Stuart Russell and myself brought together this program called On Top of the World, where we have a monthly invitation to artists, architects and other people with various come together, a, a, a monthly lecture series. And engage with an artist's uh, uh, program of commissioning a new flag per month. This is John Campbell who got the commission for the first flag and we have a very formal flag raising ceremony and lots of eating and drinking uh, as we uh, quarterly uh, celebrate the raising of the new flag. And bus projects fill our, our laneway with, uh, with the young arts community and terrible cheap wine every six weeks on, on clockwork as they have yet another opening uh, session at the small gallery. <laughs> to further expand our, our practice, when we move offshore and, and annually take our staff to Bruni Island, traditionally to tree plant. We've planted nearly 7,000 trees on this property over this 10-year uh, period. 
and this and then partaken in some some building programs and this year we did much more which if you can stay the distance for this very long lecture I'll show you at the end so it is something where we think we've sort of designed a building that allows us to sort of recognize these kind that the potential of of what we collectively consider the research that we have which is so often immediate and project specific but also self-referential and something that actually over time develops and, gain, and gains both momentum and scale within the kind of uh, work that we produce. So we are a reflective practice and we, th we hope this building uh, uh, is, is um, a reference to the way we consider our own um, motives for doing things, our own skills, the, the broad skill base of now a more mature practice with many staff uh, and, and the, many, the many minds that come together on the kinds of uh, projects that we produce. Of course, there are moments of calm and reflection. Some years ago, I did my master's at RMIT and this small diagram is actually looking and noticing, looking back and observing at that time uh, the idea that there's a, a longitudinal uh, priority amongst uh, so many of our work, a passive cross-section and a means of engagement through sort of an open-endedness that was created in many of our buildings. So taking scale out of the equation from building small to large, we looked at the way that each became a container that could open onto the, link, to, to the, to the next to actually create this sequence of interlocking spaces. And it was really just a, an observation that referred back to the work that, was up to, that had been produced by the practice up till that stage. At the end of that long master's experience became this master's unit that again became a piece of performance of, that it suggested the way not only we work as a practice and I, and, and I work um, and, and find a pl my own place within that practice, um, but the way then that informs the way our buildings operate. operate. So there's the calm and reflective side of practice. The other one is the hothousing and the intensity of competitions. And this is one that we constantly refer to as we look at our own history from time to time. The Hanover Design Competition was never to be built. It was really an ideas competition for a, a part of Melbourne's lost heritage, the original beautiful Victorian fish markets that were lost in 1954 to create a, a road widening at the bottom of Flinders Street. So we recalled it. We recalled its dimension in the proportion of a large glass facade and then packed it with every possible piece of program that we could imagine. Then we found and discovered topographies, edges of uh, the Yarra River, both recent and past. Um, associations between programs, both those programs that appeared to be compatible and those that also appeared to be completely disparate, that we could jam together in this quite frenzied arrangement uh, within the proportioning device of the, this large glass, glass screen that reflected the whole of the building that was once on the site. And most recently, we were one of the six finalists in the uh, international competition for Flinders Street uh, Station. And our scheme, uh, we think, sort of uh, expressed our consideration of our city as one of many places. And ours was probably the least singular and most disparate in its engagement with the city and recognising uh, the, the various edges that it um, that it coupled with and looking at the way we could uh, promote activities related to the, to the patterns of engagement this site has uh, on all of its edges. To our most recent building in Hobart that sits on a very precious historic um, harbour's edge, 
uh, on the concrete apron that was created that, and our building is now one, I think we're probably the third building in the history of Hobart on this exact site. The buildings themselves have been ephemeral. What has been most important is the structure of this concrete apron itself. And so our building refers very much to those that went before it and to the, and to the, uh, the Cove Edge as much as to the program of the building itself. So we're always, again, looking at the nature of the many strands that combine what is, has been for us a, a very broad practice. We've, um, I think if we're fortunate as a practice to be defined by one thing, it is certainly the breadth of, of the work that we undertake. We um, still lovingly produce houses, uh, large and small, uh, and engage in, in buildings of, of, of vaster types that um, contribute to the cities that they're a part of. And so they are, we've, we often search for the strands that actually then combine projects, small and large. Scalelessness is, um, again, one of our invented words, and it's, it's an interest that we always have with scale itself, as we were a very small practice that became larger. We became larger often by uh, joining our activities and increasing our scale as a practice with others. We've joined forces with other architectural practices, particularly those that had other particular skills or geographic uh, associations that allowed us to actually grow our scale to complete and engage and complete uh, a lot other projects in other parts of Australia. The projects themselves refer to the shift in scale from the smallest beach house to the largest city building and back and reversing that order. And, and the, the, what is frequently interesting to us is the fact that ideas themselves are generally scaleless. Um, it's only in the, the, the idea of something that's generated out of a sketch or a computer model lacks any kind of scale at all until we render it in full scale as in, during the act of building. So this, this the, the nature of scales and then how we convert that into the textural experience of the very fine detail or the very large silhouette of the way a building engages with the city is constantly fascinating to us. Hybrid typology, how we can actually appreciate the particular skill set that we as architects have to bring to engage with a group of librarians or research scientists or a, a developer from time to time or a family with uh, their own precious brief for a family home and we can borrow and uh, our kind of the skill sets that we use to participate with those various conversations and so the, the that active engagement architect to client is something that um, we can learn and, and dramatically shift in, in the nature of the building typology itself, as well as the systems, the, the, um, the nature of appreciation of how uh, the, the social setting is created from small family home to large city building is also uh, cross-referenced between uh, many typologies. And the way then sometimes it allows us to shift our discussion with a client about something that would have otherwise been a singular building type and actually advance the ambition by creating something else out of a more conventional brief. And of course, for us, a very important consideration is material, the materiality that we work with and the act of making, the way we consider the process of building, the exacting nature of craft, the shifting and, and rapidly re-appraising uh, of the nature of craft. Where, where craft exists in buildings is becoming manifestly different. Um, we still think craft, I actually have a very optimistic view of craft, it, 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 we, we can lament the loss of a particular type of craft but appreciate 
the shift in values that are still evident in our work. And we think as architects we have this wonderful um, opportunity to actually push others toward their skill limit that otherwise conventions of buildings don't do. Well, actually, as part of that is in disrupting systems, and particularly for the students in the audience, I think it is interesting the way we try very much, we think very technically as an office, that, that by appreciating and understanding the technical requirements of, of systems, we can actually subvert those requirements and become less conventional in their application. And mining history, it's a particular fascination that goes through much of our work, is, uh, and it's a very personal, um, appreciation of history that we'll often uh, draw in as often from distracted sources, something that seems very wide of the mark in engaging with a client and, and the formulating of their brief, and draw many histories, the physical history and social histories of a region, uh, into a particular commission. So from part of that, and I notice it's part of your syllabus when, uh, when we looked at the sort of things I imagine I'll be talking to some of you students about tomorrow, from sketch to solid, the way we actually um, produce things from the initial thought and the way that the sketch conducts often fragments of our research and investigation. For me, you'll see I'm the one with these frantic, messy sketches that usually means I'm not alone. I'm actually sitting there drawing with a group of others in the office. And when they let me, I'm actually drawing over their drawings as well as my own in this repeated uh, fashion. As a complete counterpoint to that, Steph and me in the practice, the other principal can almost perfectly start on one side of a piece of paper and continue to work sideways in an almost perfect uh, rendition of an idea. So a completely different technique that still emanates from a particular drawing skill. And Andy Wong, who's since graduating 18 years ago and has joined with us in the practice in making these incredible process models that become part of the architecture of our practice if you were to ever visit. And again, with the generosity that Andy allows for me and others to sketch over these three-dimensional sketch pads that he creates along the journey of making a building. Well, Bill Kutiris, who actually involved very much in more in the design development phase in his more exacting drawings express a sort of a more physical understanding of the nature of building that's embedded in these kinds of drawings. Or Megan Dwyer and the, and the way she actually, from, from the engagement with the clients in the first stage, brings a, to bearing a kind of a, a really interesting engagement with the, um, the program of the building itself and the ordering systems that we then devise to calibrate that brief and, and, and add form to that program. Very often the sketching it, it itself becomes part of the architecture, the nature of sketching two parts of a house uh, then generate into the house itself as it looks at a split between uh, trees in a forest. Or sketching over a contour map to find the perfect line that lines up exactly with the, the exact nature of the contour becomes the edge of a farmhouse. Or looking over, again, another topographical study to look at a junction in the Yarra River and the broad conduit that provides views in one direction to the Yarra River draws them through the house and then aims them between two adjoining properties to a very exacting view of the city. Or recording a conversation between two clients about the nature of their inhabitation of a house becomes part of the architecture of the cabinetry itself. 
And here's what I can convince you these aren't those terrible, these drawings that architects often do at the end of it to post justify the original idea. The messiness of my drawings show absolutely that they are part of a frantic delving for ideas at the commencement of the job. And here we are in discussion with two clients about the nature of the move that they are undertaking out to the countryside and how similar that is to the viticultural processes of making wine as budstock and rootstock are co-joined. Um, in uh, the act of viticulture and winemaking and the way that idea and that very first discussion uh, with a client be, uh, became the form of the house. So the idea of scalelessness and that shift in scale that we so often see in our own work from the smallest things to the largest, we were participated in the Venice Biennale um, I think it was two or three ago and with this idea of, of multiplicity, the way when asked the, uh, to speculate on the way the city of Melbourne could grow in time uh, and here our thought was to invert, pro, invert the spread and actually build the city back on top of itself and Melbourne is very much about the hodl grid, a, a completely uh, rectilinear grid system and the way we could apply a new fluid and more organic grid over the top of that to actually, uh, to actually share space with that and build density toward the centre of the city and using buildings as portals that still were placed on the original HODL's grid but suspended new forms of inhabitation and created a vast platform that both provided shade to a city in a heating world and means of agriculture, um, aerospace and other things in the, the wonders of a scheme that we knew we didn't have to worry too much about. Um, the act of construction. And the way we can continually can refer back into scale and look at how a small building with this open-endedness, another, another term we use in, the, in our practice, a, sm a small beach house, the Barrow-Narring Beach House, can form a project many years later, um, the Victoria University Exercise Sports Science Precinct building. And the way when we opened up our building to a Melbourne's open house a few years ago, while it was still a construction site, we could create a city out of the models that we had constructed over time. Operability is a, is a really interesting aspect and we're forever trying to get away from the conventions of walls and doors and look at the way that um, the operability can actually reflect change that the occupant can take on and create a life for their own that they're much more in control of when they occupy the building. As, a, as an interesting part of this discussion is this um, uh, jewellery box which I designed. I'm very proud of this. I, did a I designed it and did a complete set of working drawings on a flight from Wellington to Melbourne some years ago for a, an anniversary present for my wife and it contains a marriage long uh, uh, collection of, of jewellery that one piece that's engaged with with a friend, a very dear friend of ours that's uh, it's a, it's a, it's a career and marriage spanning commission that, and, and a new piece is produced each year and this jewellery box was designed um, to celebrate that. It became then like one of our houses, we look at the, the, the means of, oper of operation. It has a longitudinal priority like so much of our work. It's open-ended. It, you actually configure it through operating through the, these passive edges, that the, longitudinal, the, the cross edges and then it conducts itself in a way that sort of opens up and, and gives life and narrative to the, its association with its purpose uh, in, as we delve into it. In the same way, this small house, which is the latest house we're working on in the office, 
um, suggests the theatre of operability in its way of engaging with the life of the clients within. So it's um, on the edge of a row of terrace houses. We've sliced this terrace house diagonally, so it completes the row of Victorian terrace houses in this street. But it provides, and it's very narrow, it's about four and a half metres wide, but luckily for us, it is actually the last of that row of terrace houses on another street that has no, no immediate neighbours. So we've suggested that becomes the side and this is the frontage. And it's a, this large, rather bland uh, panel of very finely detailed timber becomes the new front of the house. And it operates and opens up according to the activities of the, of the occupants within. It's a bit like one of those cards you can often get at Christmas that operate and actually reveal parts of the, the um, preparatory engagement with uh, pre-Christmas. Um, and here, depending on whether they're dining, living, opening up the bedroom, uh, arriving in the study, this is what we call the small sulking seat. There's a, a, a void down here, you open that up only if you are, happen to be uh, sitting in that area. All suggest the theatre of occupation and the opening up of this very narrow linear volume within. To a house um, that is very much strongly associated with the arrangement of program between two powerful forces, uh, a powerful view and the need for North Sun. This is uh, the Fairhaven House that won the Robin Boyd Award this last year. The uh, initial sketching process, the f then the observations and this initial uh, spirited research of observation on site as from the first visit, it was pronounced that well, let's, it's, it's on a remarkable edge of uh, the, the, the coastal development. It's virtually the end house. Um, and we thought, wouldn't it be good if the colours within the house were embedded with only those things that we observed on site at that first visit? So they are the, the, the timber colour of the eucalyptus oblique, uh, the, the indigenous tree variety. And the only applied colours are these small bits of fungus and lichen that were actually evident on some of the trunks. So the whole house is, uh, is completed internally out of the one Victorian timber type, or sorry, New South Wales timber type. On the outside of this solid green zinc that matches fairly exactly uh, the leaves of the eucalyptus oblique. So our first speculative models of that and this also ha this house had to follow a very strict planning regime of sitting within the silhouette of the hillside so there's a very strong reason why the house is crimped and, and forced into its architectural arrangements it's, it's a series of, of um, settings for inhabitation that all have to align and sit from various vantage points where we are not um, sitting beyond and breaking the silhouette of the hillside that's behind, behind me here when viewed from the Great Ocean Road. So these are a series of chambers. So aligning space and spaces that have um, a sort of a performative function. It's like, uh, the idea of, of enhancing that point of arrival by unfolding and revealing along uh, the journey through this uh, narrow passageway that then refers back to itself. There's an exact relationship between the internal timber lining and the outside form. So at every so often we've sliced through the two so you can actually see there's reasons for these, this crimping process that's been undertaken. As we journey down into the front living room that is a set between the North Sun and the association with activities out toward the sun 
and the broad panorama beyond. So the idea, if, we, if this all is about this remarkable view and the breaking it into these settings between views to lighthouses, to great oceans and to headlands, then we didn't want it the distraction of a multitude of surfaces. So the whole house is, is lined completely, including all of the joinery, with this one continual wrap of timber. The commission went right down through to, into the, the dining table and the rather theatrical idea of, of dining settings and grooves that the, plate, the plates plug into and so forth. It was a, a remarkable commission. The idea that there are, again, no distractions, everything sits um, in a sort of a fairly passive status to the view beyond this complete wrap of the timber surround. And then from there to a, a project that spanned the entire length of the design of that house in the centre of Sydney, the Westfield City, Sydney project, where two large commercial towers sit above a retail precinct in the heart of Sydney. I thought I'd just take you through a few parts very quickly of this large urban project, the idea of, of knitting together urban fabric and suggesting uh, the fabric of the fashion district that this was a part of and, the, and this, the idea of the nature of stitching together which becomes part of its urban narrative and part of the suggestion of the, the program within. Looking at engaging with artists, here Danny Marty provided this remarkable concrete set rope sculpture to form one of, the, one of the entrances. Simon Perry produced his eyelash gate to actually provide nighttime security to one of the laneways that were set into the midst of the scheme. And one more that I'll show you in a minute. What was interesting for us is part way up this building, well above all of the retail setting at ground level, was to be a sky lobby. And the Westfield allowed us the vast adventure of, of providing signals to the qualities and, and uh, the, the character and, and activities of that sky lobby down into a small shuttle, shuttle lobby down on Castlereagh Street. So we wanted to provide a materiality as we did in the beach house that, was a, that provided constancy to these quite disparate functional elements. We wanted it to be appear solid, so we developed a batten system that could actually reveal itself as a solid timber, not a veneer or an applied finish. Uh, and, and went to a lot of trouble actually creating this batten system that would turn corners, create uh, and, and, and continue on its, um, with its rhythm uh, in a, through a series of different uh, radiuses and forms as it conducted itself around first the shuttle lobby, then taking you right up through to the main sky lobby above and into the lift lobbies. So again, a uh, relationship between a small parallel project and one much larger and more recently the commissioning of Peter Hennessy to do this remarkable work that now sits in that foyer. Of course, then the, engage, the way this building engages with its neighbour, be, neighbours became a fascination to us. So its radial form uh, meant that it actually, uh, we exaggerated the, the, it's the space between it and two adjoining buildings. And then we looked at what we described as embedded reflections. We actually looked with, through digital photography uh, at the patterns of, of the reflections of the buildings that surround it. So we imagined the, the completed building and the reflections that it would contain from the buildings that surrounded that, that surround it, and then provided those and, and exaggerated them by actually placing them back within the building into the back, into the back panels 
of the building. It's very subtly set, it's barely um, visible, but it does actually show and enhance this relationship the building does have to those that surround it. In the same way, we observe a different kind of embedded relationship to context. Here, a small house, um, again, toward the end of that same commission in Fitzroy. Our first visit to site was actually a missing one of a series of, of a row of Victorian terraces. And what was remarkable about the site was not only the formation of the silhouette of both adjoining terraces, but the public art project that had undergone for many years with the street art that had been created there. So with a fantastic client, we just undertook to consider this in the same way we might consider a topographical aspect of, an, of, a, of a setting of a more natural site or a, um, uh, an, an important uh, historic cultural artefact or something that would actually enlarge the status of these works and we thought we'd design the house around them so they could be both incorporated into the house and, and minimise the loss uh, along the way and then actually refer to them. So here we actually photographed and then digitally set and pixelated many of the patterns in that into the, the brick surface of the small house that sat there. We even designed the house, it's in two pavilions, so the minimum interface was between house and the work that was set there. So only the stairwells of the two pavilions actually set up onto that party wall uh, with the neighbour to reveal the work that was there and then, uh, then appreciating that we were creating actually their new canvases for further street art that would follow and it quickly did. In the same way then with a more recent project, this, the idea of embedded reflections, we could actually then, rather than apply or print those reflections, we could actually play around with them and look at the way that by concertinaing a facade and looking at reflective, the, the reflective qualities of glass, we could actually um, kind of provide this shattered appearance of the sky that surrounds a tall building. Well, here in a project that literally came off a drawing board today, the way we could look at actually the fabric of the outer skin of the tower itself to suggest the patterns of the, of, um, very subtly, the patterns of the formatting of the apartments within, gathering together this gauze around the bedrooms and then opening it up around the balconies and the living spaces. So this subtle suggestion of the way the internal character of the building uh, would operate within that outer skin. And background of view is one thing, again, looking at the opportunities to provide variance. Um, the, that house that I've just shown you, Fairhaven, um, was designed really only about three or four months be before another house. And I, we're particularly pleased in our practice about the variance between these two, uh, these two houses in every way of the arrangement of program, uh, their formal qualities, the, the settings of the plans and so forth, whereas really they had two things that were, uh, were strongly um, similar between two. Both, both houses looked out across a panoramic field of water. This one the sea, this one an inland lake in Lake, lake Wendaree in, um, in Ballarat in central Victoria. In this one the prospect was that here's on first visit to the site that the, it was on a suburban block and it was a bit like blinkers on a racehorse, the view was much wider than the, the confines of the block. And is there a way we could actually get that view and enhance it? So first off, reducing it down to a window formatting, putting structure in, considering the aspects of inhabitation, and then getting the bits that didn't fit within sight and wrapping them vertically and then back around the house itself to create this space that considered a view that was larger 
than the house itself. And this is uh, the completed house with the, the wrap, the wrap of, of a broad panorama applied uh, and extending around the formal, the formal volume of that container. The explanatory building is again is one of a firm that we constantly refer to and it really re comes back really to a pair of buildings and this is one of them at the RMIT uh, International Printing Building as it was known then that looked at the nature of, of an extrusion. Here the, the, the metaphor was something that was absolutely rudimentary, this small aluminium uh, cross-section through a glazing suite, a really humdrum piece of building material. But the, the lessons that are embodied in that, that by looking at the cross-section, it tells us everything about that piece of building material. It tells about the, the, the structural performance that's required to take the sheet of glass, the locating of the glass, the strengthening that's required, the, the clips that require it to be adapted and clipped to become part of a linear system. Everything we know and need to know about that is actually embodied in that cross-sectional diagram of that thing. In the same way, in an, an instructive building, an educational building, if we could do the same thing here, well, maybe it was a building that could then um, pronounce in a, in a very um, exaggerated fashion uh, the performative qualities of the building within. Other aspects of the nature of, of the exactitude of joints and borrowing from one of our favourite books in the office of fine Japanese wood joints and then build, constructing these in concrete for the, for the longitudinal ex, ex, edges of the building again became part of that building's narrative. At the same time, my own house um, was the same thing. The, the end elevation is completely passive other than this one bit of mannerism as the top glass floats down above the glass below, but we see the box gutters, the edge conditions, the, 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 floor the floors revealed, everything about the internal character of this space is, is, is uh, completely exposed in the open-endedness of the facade. And then years later again many of those, uh, the, the, the lessons from both of those buildings drawn into our Melbourne Grammar School Nigel Peck Centre for Learning and Leadership as the various program elements were pronounced in this ashlar composition of the steel and structural glazed uh, sections of this vast facade. And then down to even smaller elements themselves and the kind of narrative that could be um, found in a coffee table. In, in this one, a coffee table designed for my home uh, that actually has this um, detachable uh, cheese board massive drinks tray, there's a scale problem here, it takes two people to comfortably carry drinks around the room with this overscaled drinks tray and all the idea is really is, is expressing the qualities of end grain, this longitudinal uh, aspect of the design of this piece of furniture. To a building then, our, the first of our two architecture schools um, for the University of South Australia, the Louis Laybourne School of Architecture, now the School of Architecture and Design, that actually then had to appear on a very gritty commercial script, uh, uh, scripted uh, part of this, this uh, street. And so really what we did was we actually choreographed the internal programs and drew them to the front. So the, the, the most lively parts of the program where people were most engaged with collaborative activity were drawn to the outer casing and oriented toward the street. And part of the narrative of that building was it's a building that appears 
unfinished. It's all the surface that exposes it. You can actually look through and see the layers of the primary, secondary stru structures, uh, the finishes and, and services and so forth are all uh, cut in cross-section or exposed utterly to view and as if somehow the building is completed by each intake of students throughout um, their academic year. To our um, most recent building, it's five weeks off completion for the, the new Faculty of Architecture, Planning and Building for the University of Melbourne. One of the interesting stories, and I'll just touch on a few from a very large and complex project, was our dealing with this facade, this all-important Joseph Reed Bank of New South Wales facade that sat as, as a relic or a remnant for a longer period of time as, as part of this 1930s building on campus, the old School of Commerce, than it ever did back in Collins Street as the front facade of the Bank of New South Wales. So we had to pick up on this, really demolish the building behind it, retain it, support it, and actually give it new purpose and new life in, as, as a central element of the formal composition of the, the front elevation of this campus as it faces, um, is this building as it faces the campus centre. So again, we drew on our own knowledge of history as part of this and said, well, what, one thing this neoclassical facade does, it actually provides us a great series of oculi, of viewing portals, as we look in and actually uh, um, conduct ourselves and our relationship to the building within and its program. And we looked at the process of, of how we perceive perspective. And Palladio did that so well with the creation of the Teatro Olimpico um, in Vicenza. And the way we understand then with the exaggerated patterns of the laneways as part of this, of this uh, sequence of sets that were created was the, was the opportunity to both perceive but also um, calibrate uh, and represent uh, proportion, distance and scale uh, to the kind of space within. And so we thought we could actually take these lessons and give new life by creating a setting for the massive exhibition chamber within that historic facade. The building itself is set around a massive uh, atrium, a massive design hall that actually choreographs all of the activity in a very inward fashion. Part of that is these, what we call the Y-shaped stairs um, that uh, provide opportunities for engagement across the staircase and become a primary means of movement, movement up through the building. And the construction of these stairs both celebrate the need for, for direct access and the sort of serendipitous nature of association as they deviate through um, uh, each of the levels that are conducted at this important end of the building. And the idea that each part of this building becomes a pedagogical exercise in itself and, and the way allows us to evaluate the way space is created as well as the way that we intend to inhabit space. So the roof itself becomes a primary elevation of the, this vast interior of the building. So this massive uh, cross-laminated uh, roof system that draws in light and attracts uh, and orients itself toward the south and east and dispels more toward the north and particularly the west at mid-span uh, supports these three um, design studios at centre span of the vast, um, this vast roof system. And in, in doing so, it actually reminds us of the kind of internal qualities that are, uh, the, uh, spaces that in themselves seem 
inexorably external and public in their pronouncement. And we think this really uh, harks back to a very important part of, of uh, the university's original master plan that acknowledged one of the qualities of the University of Melbourne was not so much the buildings but the spaces between buildings and these outdoor rooms that actually separate the activities of the buildings around the campus. And so it's our belief, working with, I should acknowledge, our joint venture partner NADA from Boston, was to, uh, the, the two practices working closely together. Our first work was to actually acknowledge this um, very durable master plan um, and give it life by pronouncing uh, an internal space at the heart of our building that really is set as part of one of these uh, external uh, civic rooms. And it's here we are at suspension, this, this arrangement of three rooms come down and just above head height appear to hover and, and bounce just short of the, the floor plate and playing around with the need for acoustic attenuation becomes part of the setting and the qualities of that space of this um, incredibly delicately set suffit at the underside of that. And the way then the systems, the, the screening systems themselves become part of the facade. The, the facade systems that appear to follow very strict diagrams of exposing uh, uh, parts of the program or orienting a shift in the solar orientation of the building then become quite mannered at this one point to gather together to actually start to suggest the metre and rhythm and timing of the, uh, of the classical facade that they then become a part of. So these screens themselves became a massive part of our design enterprise. Um, here they are on the west as they become more than just screens, they become part of this building's association with, the, with uh, the very powerful history of the Joseph Reed facade adjacent. But the facades themselves have become a very big part of the pedagogical power of this building. As we see, they, they script absolutely the working character of this building. They need to draw in air, its, it's operability, uh, the shading systems that sit as part of that become very much part of the open expression of the building itself. The way we've engaged with that is looking at the uh, and appreciating the industrial processes that are required to create a variant system that has different performative characteristics on around all sides of the building. So what appears at first glance to be completely um, uh, similar in, in the structure of and the nature of these uh, facade panels as we look at them, we start to realise they actually shift and turn and, and, and reorient themselves as we move around the building. And then the fabric itself um, has a high degree of variance uh, throughout it. The nature of silhouette is a very big part of what uh, of our interest is, as we engage with larger building types. So with the Hawke Building in South Australia for the University of South Australia, we're aware of not only the setting that was created and the important qualities of a building that pronounces itself, particularly in this case, at the, as an edge of campus building uh, in its engagement with the city, but also the way that it expresses the, the architectural characters uh, of the university itself. We were actually providing a new uh, topographical edge, the, the, the silhouette of the university and its relationship to the city. So part of that is the pronouncement of the facade system itself and it's and part of this was the idea of creating a facade that would record uh, the character of time. 
and be part of the way we um, both predict and observe the passing of time on building fabric. So we looked at two disparate materials, copper that wants to stain and, and concrete that wants to be stained. We designed a system where we put as much texture into these little concrete strips as we could. We created a recess uh, that where the staining, the verdigree staining of these, uh, this copper would over time uh, provide these tiers of verdigree into these recesses and record the passage of time uh, on this civic building as part of the recording of the, of the power of human ambition. Also part of that is the recognition of, of, of our place in space and in this case one single window that pronounces the corner of the building and looks out to the centre of Colonel Light's plan for the, for the city of Adelaide but there's cut back rather savagely to then refer back to uh, its alignment with the centre of campus. Unfortunately for us, it, we didn't uh, anticipate just how clean the air quality is in Adelaide. You need a fair degree of pollution for this to um, accumulate the uh, staining as much as we would like, but it is there, it's very but much more subtle than our predictions. To then using this remarkable, back into materials research, this remarkable material that we've become particularly confident in our use with, and it's particularly evident in the state of South Australia, I'd have to say, in the city of Adelaide. Um, it must have been uh, due to, uh, we think, uh, the immigration of a series of, of incredible Italian artisans into that city. They all seem to be Italian that, has, that work in this remarkable precast industry. Uh, the latest is our, is our Jeffrey Smart, Learning Centre uh, that looks at the qualities of inhabitation of space and relates those back to the, the kinds of settings that we, we could judge to uh, curate various activities within a very dense building format. So here um, our interest in solar orientation has created panels deflect according to their um, part in the whole and they are then projected inwardly to the kinds of settings that have been created in those moments of the facade and its relationship to the, both its orientation and aspects of the city beyond. And to a small current project, again, and looking at the way a university, in this case Melbourne University with their VCA campus, wish to inject new life as part of a, uh, an initiative of government to help to, as part of this creation of Melbourne's new art precinct and uh, the, the conceptual design for a new conservatorium of music that intentionally shifts the scale of a fairly low rise area to pronounce the ingress of a, a large population of music students onto a tight program uh, into the centre of, of a, an area that is again is, is, is full of potential but so far lacking the consequences and content that's required for a public program that, it will, that will allow it to participate with the uh, existing areas of, um, of Melbourne's cultural program that engage with the city beyond. So what we're trying to do here is, uh, the, the university is trying to do, is actually extend something that is already existing and enhance its potential um, through a shift in scale and a placement of this building very carefully on, a, on the, uh, the edge of this, what we hope will be Melbourne's new art spine. <coughs> Ambiguity and curiosity um, is a thing that I think is very interesting because we can read architecture at its most literal, its most built, 
and physical, uh, but we can also appreciate the qualities that people have by, uh, by the many readings that we all create when we, when we uh, experience the built environment. We can take these sorts of lessons from other parallel areas of, of creative endeavour. And I, I think the film industry is always of great interest in this way. In point blank, the, the idea, there's a slip between um, what we see and, um, and the soundtrack as, as um, take you back into that, as uh, the main protagonist might leave one set and, and enter into another one. It actually, what it does is actually uh, exaggerate and enhance uh, the disorientation that the filmmaker wished to uh, make by uncoupling uh, two things that we generally associate that are absolutely in parallel, sound and, and visual cues as we navigate our way through space. In the same way, Jacques Tati um, playfully but very politically um, showed his displeasure with uh, contemporary architecture in Paris in the 1950s by reversing the standing order, so, um, and particularly of, of the soundtrack. So the, it, the film is almost a silent film as the, uh, the narrative between the major players is, in, is the background and the things that he detested about modern architecture, the, the hum of an air conditioning system, the, foot, the footfall of, of um, feet on a harsh surface, the clackiness of a door opening and closing in poor acoustic conditions all became to the foreground. So again, um, the way that the physical environment has been reset um, in, in, this, uh, in this play is something that I think provides us with lessons for the way we can appreciate and speculate on how people will perceive the space that we create for them. Um, as part of this is understanding also uh, the endeavours of other creative enterprises, certainly car, car design and manufacture has always been of great interest to me. I always place the cars I've had over the years with the, the, the different projects. Um, the Zagato, to me, the most remarkable of the Italian stylists, certainly the most avant-garde, uh, did the most wonderful sort of geometric settings. At the same time, Ferdinand Porsche was doing those remarkable shifts in the design of a Porsche, of shifting the nature of, of, of compounding curves and the points of radius. Zagato was actually converting pleats and, and into curves in these uh, little cars. This is a car of mine that's... Uh, that is constantly referred to in uh, the character of some of these sorts of uh, compositions that we have constructed as a practice. Well, the kind of narrative in that, in that Fairhaven house, in the design of a piece of furniture, the, the, the completion of it was this coffee table that we designed for the client that was, could have only been designed at the stage of knowing that client. It couldn't have been designed at the start of the project. We didn't know then that the way that the, 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 the um, performative characteristics that the house would have to be to uh, respond to and the personal characteristics of the two clients. She's rather scholarly and bookish and goes down and reads books and magazines. So her half of the coffee table, these two rolls of timber that roll together to contain whatever periodical she's reading. He um, de-stresses by drinking a fair amount of alcohol. So his is actually this coupled drinks tray with no edges. So the whole idea is playfully he has to be particularly sober to walk a tray of drinks around a room on a, on a weekend. Or the nature of my own uh, disparate collecting of things um, 
and a reference back to a Gareth Sampson painting, a house, a house we designed many years ago for Gareth Sampson, and this great painting he did uh, that actually relate, responds to um, the endeavours of artists and the participation and the contribution of craftspeople throughout the history of art. It takes me to one, very rarely we show our losses of practice, but for us this is one of our more glorious losses. We're one of six, I think, Australian practices asked to contribute ideas for a competition for um, the Australian pavilion in the Giardini in Venice. We look very carefully at the idea of, of, of transporting uh, cultures and, and elements that may be suggestive of, of many of the characteristics of those cultures. Coloration was one, uh, and the nature of skill sets being another. And then the design of this small pavilion that sat on the edge of the canal, on the very edge of the Giardini, was our fascination with terracotta. Again, our recall of history, we know that uh, Australia had a fantastic terracotta industry, now largely lost, and it was through our um, uh, immigration program, mainly from skilled artisans from uh, par various parts of particularly northern Italy that came and set up Australia's early terracotta industry. We thought it would be a great idea if we could this, if we could then reverse the favour and actually um, prop up the now um, suffering uh, Italian terracotta industry and actually provide design the complete fabric for this building that would actually be constructed in the Veneto, um, in these wonderful small terracotta industries that uh, work through this area, um, and uh, but do it um, in, in a particularly Australian idiom. So the first thing we did is actually look at the, the nature of the setting of this gallery, um, the, the way that the kind of exhibits could be conducted, the space could be rearranged according to certain types of art programs. But then it really got back to the way we would render it, the nature of materials. And the point we made was, as this structure that you'll see in a minute on our property of Bruni Island, the nature the way when we use materials, how many materials contain a memory. The, the rocks from this rock wall contain the memory of their stacking from when the first settlers of this piece, this landscape, stacked them and the lichen formed on the outer layers of these rocks. So this, this King Billy pine that still bears the rust marks of the straps that, can, that held it together when it was part of the um, first timber aqueduct of Tasmania's oldest power station. So working with a very brilliant friend of our practice, uh, Simon Lloyd, an industrial designer, we developed this system of terracotta panels that would be made locally, uh, the, the, the system made here, the, but then constructed over in the Veneto, and we would take the oxides, the coloration from various parts of Australia to contribute to its, um, its character. We're still plumbing the uh, mining this little comet. The fact that it didn't win is still something that, uh, that is of lesser concern because it, for us it was a great bit of research into materiality that we still hope to, are and hoping to make uh, greater use of. Another thing is also in the way that something is perceived. So a proportioning device was a, a Palladian villa uh, in the Veneto. And actually, so it's this very vague suggestion of referencing a Palladian villa and the early establishment of the equivalent in Australia at the time, which was uh, the, the tent flap of a tent, of a tent structure in the, of the Australian gold rush. 
to something much more remarkable, a different kind of exhibition. If you, any of you ever visit North Bruny Island, the North Bruny Island Beer Can and, Chain, and Chainsaw Museum is certainly one of our great cultural highlights of, of our region. So this little property is, is one of the great distractions of, of our practice. Um, set on 1,200 acres, uh, established by Captain James Kelly. This small house was built by Kelly in 1840. He was the father of Australia, one of the fathers of Tasmania's whaling industry. The old whaling station is still evident down below the house. And there's the house as it sat for 170 years on this cliff edge. Uh, I'll just take you through these photos very quickly. Arietta Itali, a remarkable photographer from New York, is doing the rounds of Australia at the moment. I think she's, she's in New South Wales next and coming to, toward Queensland, has just taken uh, these as part of her series of a fascination of buildings in the landscape as part of a study that she's doing that's being sponsored by RMIT in Melbourne. So to the reason for why our Shearer's Quarters exists in the manner it does, and that became the only fairly recent discovery of these set of photographs that were taken when the house was already 100 years old in 1940. And what was evidence was the old shearing shed there, and the speculation with this very crummy photograph about what was, seems to be either a sequence of interlocking skillions or, or a single gable that was um, the format of that and the appreciation um, of the nature of these two primary forms of industrial shed, the, the gable and the skillion, and the way we could const construct something that in first engagement was the most simple form of rudimentary agricultural structure, the skillion, but as it then uh, it went, went on its journey through to its end that engaged with the old house, which is a sequence of gables, it would become a gable. So it was a speculation on what existed, and they're not worrying too much about what actually existed, but our recall of what existed became then a primary driver for the nature of uh, the, the formatting of this structure. So on one side it appears very much rudimentary shed, it's only as we come around toward the north we see that in fact it is a container for occupation. So its means of operation is very much one that then creates a setting in miniature as much as anything. A lot of the work that was done on this house was actually through setting this proportioning device of, of the macrocarpa boards on a 750 module. It started on a 900 module and we just reduced it down and down and down until we got things as small as they could be. So that module which governs everything, every door, every window, every piece of joinery, every room proportion, came out of that module. It really got down to 750s, about as narrow as a door should be, and that became it, to make the house as small as it possibly could uh, to fulfil all its requirements for occupation and contain uh, the smallest possible footprint on this piece of land. And then reorchestrating the way with which we operate uh, the means of enclosure and the creation of these viewing portals align with various aspects of the landscape. Uh, the nature of then the setting, the fireplace and this, if, uh, it's often, I think Frank Lloyd Wright referred to the fireplace as the heart of the house, so this becomes the ECG of the heartbeat that emanates from it. And the way activity is conducted within. Again a lot of it is still 
has been developed through our fascination with recalled history. This is the young family that operated as a commercial apple orchard up until England joined the common market in 1970 and decimated the Tasmanian apple industry overnight. Out of my fascination with their life and that, that of the history of the region became a, a, a collection as I would devour all these local sheds of all their apple technology and notice they all had these piles of perfectly uh, arranged timber that was now 50 years old uh, stacked ready to make the next day's apple boxes. So in the social history that existed in this region, uh, these hard-working families and these little micro industries would would pick, sort, grade and pack the apples, go home, have dinner and then under kerosene lamps at night time make the boxes in their box machines for the next day's picking. So of course when the apple industry was killed off overnight, the next day's boxes remained as they have for so long uh, in these stacks of timber. Finally a purpose could be found with them after months of thinking and they became all of the cross walls. Again this fascination with our longitudinal axes and these pass the passive nature of the, and the disparate uh, um, qualities often of, of the, of the cross walls in our compositions became the opportunity that they could be defined by these, the, the cladding with the apple box timber. And it really is a shearer's quarters, they've just left. Um, as well as for our practice, our family and friends. The Complete Antithesis is a project we embarked upon and then sort of gave up on. It was actually an opportunity we were invited in to become part of a, an internet service for designing a house that rather than that one that was so heavily rooted in its location, to design a house that could be anywhere, that could be sold off the internet and engaged with by clients from Norway, to Papua New Guinea and it was a fascinating speculation. We embarked upon the journey of, uh, the, the, the journey of speculation, designing a house that could respond to, by, both by flipping to many solar orientations, uh, conduct itself to a speculative uh, requirement for inhabitation, shift around purposefully on varying topographies. Um, but in the end, I think it was just that lack of kind of the substantive qualities of something that really drives a stake into the ground that um, was one of the reasons why we sort of lost interest in the project and it went no further. To then something that shows my fascination with a good conversation and, uh, and detail is this object designed for a friend. He was, uh, a few years ago he was a friend to our practice, a person who again we often collaborate with in idea making and we both sat at a, at a restaurant table with our brand new uh, iPhone 4s and I had a sturdy daggy cover around mine and, and he had his in its pristine original form and I commented with that glass on both sides surely that's going to smash and he told me how ridiculous I was and what a philistine that this is one of the most remarkable bits of industrial design of the last 50 years and how could you possibly do anything with it so I thought ah I've got an idea it was his about to be his 50th birthday so I designed this and based on the principles of the old pencil case it was the antithesis of the digital um, era that that uh, the iPhone is so central to it, it holds all of the things that are binary, a pencil, a magnifying glass as he's turning 50 and post-it notes and all within this wide, large container on a handy belt clip. 
that sits conveniently on uh, his belt to wear proudly around uh, as he shows it off around Melbourne and made out of Tasmania's King Billy Pine. I'm working on the new iPhone 5 model as we speak. So ours is an architecture of acute observation. I think uh, we do our best work when we observe absolutely um, uh, the site. We listen very intently and discover the social histories and feel the responsibility of engaging with both the physical and uh, recalled histories of what exists. We observe systems and try to know them confidently and subvert them through our confidence of knowing them. We are fascinated by the act of craftsmanship and the powers of material and we refer often to our own culture and the, the passage of time that is actually we have navigated as a practice. So if I could just, that was the end of the formal part of the lecture, I'm going to scope, skate you through something uh, very quickly. Quite recently I decided to dispense with, oh actually after the suggestion of my staff I decided to dispense with what had become I think a fairly conventional experience of going down midwinter to plant trees on Bruni Island. So after a series of meetings we seeded ideas for a series of building projects. Like so much of what it do, it started as not a particularly ambitious thing. It was just what could we do this year rather than go down to Bruni and just plant trees. Um, and so we thought, well, let's start off, maybe we could get a carpenter, we could do a few different things and then maybe two carpenters. And by the time we actually left for three days out of the practice, we engaged a wonderful um, stonemason, an incredible guy that does amazing things with chainsaws, Desley, our arborist, and two carpenters and embarked upon this journey. These sorts of sketches initiate just some of the initial conversations, me talking about a tree stump on the edge of a cliff and how we could make it a, a bosun's chair with its own fire bucket, um, became part of just the suggestions of the potential of things. So here's the property, this is this what a remarkable coastal edge it has, and the idea of placing things that become part of a journey to appreciate the qualities of landscape from one that span the entire length of the property's engagement with its own coastline. Food was an imperative part of that, the construction of, of the meals and the, considering of the consideration of the ingredients was a very big part of this whole engagement with incredible local characters. This is the, the creative director of the North Bruny Island Chainsaw and Beer Cam Museum, Chainsaw, Justin Jones. We had then young architectural staff that had never picked up a power tool or in, engaged with the process of making. This is the bird, the observation platform that sits on the edge of one of the cliffs. And all this happened in two and a half days. So we split into five groups. The groups didn't really know much about what the others were doing and we ate and drank through the evenings and then got back out again each day to make these different projects. These two staff members decided to undertake the making of a style. There's then us morphing into locals. Our visit to the Chainsaw Museum, Andy Wong, whose models you've been observing throughout the talk. These two uh, took on under, under, to undertake the project of making of a style as part of the journey to cross over the fences that, that divided um, two of the paddocks. 
And the making of this style was one of the more wondrous stories of this journey. The rock project, this quite beautiful paddock just seemed to erupt in this moment of rockiness toward the top and I got a neighbour with a backhoe to just go the week before and just rip it up, just basically dismember it so that we could actually reconfigure it to suggest some process of um, inhabitation. So here's Neil the rock guy teaching us all the processes of, of stone wall construction. Reuse of old telegraph poles for a, a sleeping platform. We did still do some tree planting, as we should do each year. We journeyed round in a series of utes. This is Louis's hut, uh, a thing that I and a series of friends and our son Louis on his gap year a few years ago built uh, out of reclaimed, totally reclaimed materials. Food against was central to that experience. The bridge project to replace the old bridge that I provided that's covered in moss and gets slippery every winter after 10 years of use. So the new bridge being considered and constructed. Food. Uh, about five years ago we provided free architectural services to the local community and 40 completely unskilled people built the local hall. We had a large dinner there. Uh, Conrad, who manages things down there for us, created three massive bonfires. So each night after dinner we set fire to um, these massive bonfires and, uh, and celebrated the evening. Carrying the bridge, nearly a kilometre down to the creek bed. That's how from here you see evidence of, in a highway, you see evidence of the old bridge, the old bridge stays and there's the new bridge miraculously replacing it. And then the style. Something went wonderfully astray with scale here which is quite interesting. <laughs> um, as we climb four, the, the two shortest staff members designed something, we would climb about four metres to climb over a, a metre high fence. into the stone project. So the end of it, and miraculous, is could have been a disaster. Every, all the projects, they all had different inputs, different numbers of staff, different kind of uh, characteristics. They all finished within about half an hour of each other. We all met, we then walked over the bridge, as you've seen, the style, observed the tree planting, then over to the stone project with its fire pit. And continued our walk down along the beaches and through the forest and to the observation platform. And cantilevered picnic table. And there you have it. Thank you.